something that I actually found from other wholesalers as well is they just don't know what to do with properties that don't fit their criteria. And yes, if you have one business doing that, so it makes sense if you're getting these deals. Hey, wait a second. We can try to figure out a way to take down these deals as well. It just it makes sense from just from overall business perspective. Obviously, it's creating more channels, but at the same time, it's creating more opportunities. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. I am your host, Yona Weiss. On this exciting podcast today, we got Casey Gregerson all the way from Wyoming. Now, Casey, I have to admit to you, this, this is the first time we've ever had a guest from the great state of Wyoming on the show. So congratulations. We're expanding our, our horizons here on, on Weiss Advice, but it's a true pleasure to have you on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure to be on. And that's that I did not know that, and I, but I'm not surprised. I go to a lot of masterminds and part of a lot of different groups across the country. They're like, man, you're the first one from Wyoming. There you go. You're representing this, the great state of Wyoming, right? That's incredible. And doing it with real estate investing, because that's something that is obviously it's a state. And I'm I'm very curious as we get into your kind of backstory. I know you started off in the oil and gas industry before transitioning uh, many years ago into full time into real estate. But as we go down that path, I'd be curious to know, and I'm just saying this out loud, so I remind myself, but we'll get to it later, is what the investing is like in in Wyoming itself and out of state investing, etc. There we'll go. But for our listeners who may not be so familiar with you, I'd love to hear the backstory of where you where you started out and where you're going. Absolutely. So yeah, maybe like some other people, I started. Maybe this one's a little bit unique. So in 2010, when I was going to school, I say it's similar because it was basically a house hack. But in a way, it was yeah. Basically, my dad helped me co-sign on a house. So it's actually my roommate who was living with me. His dad owned the house and it's common in this college town that I still invest in. It's in Laramie, Wyoming. So his dad had bought the house for his older brother and he stayed there. And now he was the last one who was graduating. So they're going to sell the house. And he's, hey, why don't you buy it? And I'm like, I never bought a house, but let me talk to my dad. And my dad's like, yeah, if you want to do it. And so my dad co-signed for me. He used about $10,000 of some college savings that we had saved up because I actually had a football scholarship. So I hadn't used all my college savings. And so I was able to put basically 10000 down have him co-sign and bought the first house. And at the time I was just excited because I didn't have to pay rent anymore. And I had my roommates were paid enough that would cover the mortgage. So I was living her free, which I thought was cool. And yeah, I just actually kept that house. And then I went to work in 2012 in Houston for Shell. So I was a petroleum engineer by degree and worked there. And I really just kept that house and didn't do a whole lot for five, six years. But mm. what I got into a really unique position in my company, which I really like, where we would go to the field. So as engineers, they would send us to the field and we'd work for two weeks on a location, like managing a drilling site. So we'd be where they're drilling or fracking. We'd be manning the site for 12 hours at a time Then we'd have 12 hours off to rest or whatever. But we did that for two weeks. And then on the two weeks off, we didn't have to do anything. Like you didn't have to pick up work-wise. You didn't even have to check an email or check your phone or computer. So it's really nice. And I was able to use that time to start to build my real estate portfolio. So what really kicked it off, similar to other people, was I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. And that's when it clicked on that property I had. I'm like, oh, wow. I had never thought about that rental property I still own that now makes a couple hundred bucks because I don't live there. 
and I'm able to self-manage it, like I should do more of those. And so that took me down the rabbit hole into bigger pockets and just consuming as much content and podcasts as I could. And the other cool thing I would share with people is I was working in the field. So we'd have a lot of time driving in between locations because we're out in the middle of West Texas drilling wells and you'd be just all this windshield time and other people were, I don't know, listening to music or I don't even know what they're doing. But I was like, man, this is a great opportunity to be listening to audiobooks and drinking my coffee and listen to podcasts. And I just, that was one of some of my most favorite time of the day. So anyway, so I started really learning it. And that's when I went and bought my second property, which I'm getting a little long-winded, but it's just cool to see how that first one, after five years, it had appreciated a little bit. And I'd also add, done some value add to it. So I went to the bank and I refinanced and I was able to pull out 50,000 on my refinance. And that's what I used for the second property. And I bought the second one. And I did a value add there where I bought something and converted the house into a duplex, increased the cash flow. And that second property, I always like sharing this is, we went from renting, it was renting at 700 bucks a month, right by the campus of the 4 year University in Wyoming. And we rented that once we were all done with it, it was renting for 2,600 a month. And that cash flow, what it meant to me was I was literally, after I paid my mortgage taxes and insurance, I was making a thousand dollars of cash flow. And I'm like, holy cow. And it was after about a, yeah. And again, I literally just pretty much rolled that money from that first one into this one. I'm like, I just created a thousand dollars of cash flow. So that's what really got, that's pretty much from there it was on, right? I wanted to go find more deals. And yeah, to fast forward today, we now, I manage our own property, our own portfolio in-house with virtual assistance. We keep that in-house. We go direct to seller about three years ago when the market started heating up. I realized I couldn't buy deals in Wyoming on the MLS anymore. So we started our own wholesaling arm and we go direct to seller and find deals. And the last thing is fix and flip. We've been like that second deal. I was managing contractors from afar. I was literally in West Texas working on the rig and like getting a call during the day. I'll never forget this one. I get a call from my contractors and they're like, and I'm trying to be GC and I still have kind of a GC and manage these subs and I've got tenants in the house <laughs> and they call me. They're like, Casey, this is a part of my language. Like Casey, this is a shit show. You need to figure out what's going on here. So I'm like, okay, all right, let me, I'm sorry about this guys. And I just got more organized after that. But again, I was just trying to put this deal together, fix it up from afar. But anyway, that was my first experience in managing contractors. And today we now have in-house crews in three of our cities in Wyoming because it's been such a challenge to find contractors. We just thought to bring it in-house. So integrated company, we now have direct to seller with fix and flip. And then we hold properties for rentals. We also wholesale them. We also sell turnkey. And we're also doing a fund now to take down more buy and hold properties. So that's it. And that's a big nutshell there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's pretty impressive. I love the fact that you were able to utilize the time that you had off. Because like you said, a lot of people just haven't enjoying the time off, right? You probably got compensated pretty well from the oil and gas industry. And I think the majority of Americans go towards and, and lean towards leisure and relaxation and, and other things as opposed to using their time off to educate themselves, to further their career or to further their life in, in an entrepreneurial way, which is what exactly what you did. And I think that's something that stands out to me more than anything else in your story, because like you said, you worked for Shell. I'm sure there were tens of thousands probably of people like you who were doing similar work, whether in Texas or elsewhere around the world. And we've actually interviewed a couple of them on the show. Joseph Vermanti comes to mind also out of Houston that he worked for Exxon, I believe, and was in, in the South Pacific doing drilling and stuff there. When he also read Rich Dad Poor Dad for the first time, a very similar story. But the point is, is that it's literally 
like one out of 10,000 or something. So meaning you're standing out in the fact that you took that initiative. And I think it obviously had something to do with the fact that you had that great experience with the first rental property in college, because obviously not other people necessarily got exposed to that. But again, it didn't click to you. That was actually a thing until you read Rich Dad Poor Dad, until you actually started educating yourself. And I think that's, to me, what stands out the most. So similar to the people who are listening to this podcast, who are taking the time out of their day, whether it's on a commute, whether it's on time off from work, hopefully not during work, but you're listening to this, I think you are the one that is going to be stand out from the crowd. Yeah, absolutely. And another, to add to that, when working in oil and gas, there's a lot of volatility, right? And a lot of career, it doesn't matter what career you have, there's volatility. Right. And some people think you're playing it safe, right? It's the whole Ridge Dad, Poor Dad concept. You think you're playing it safe in your W-2, but because I was able to build that, at times, I remember a conversation with my wife to where we're like, She's like, man, we're just like, it's like you're always working and there's not a lot of time. And, and it's always been a balance, right? I'm not perfect at that. But I'll never forget when we went through a bunch of layoffs three or four years ago in my oil and gas job. And I was talking to my supervisors and people that have been there way longer than me, almost senior level executives that are like, if I get laid off, I don't know what to do. I don't know. There's no other step. But I was so happy at that time that I had built this to where I had an on-ramp to where I didn't have to. Yeah, I was able to mitigate the kind of volatility of oil and gas by doing this stuff and building it on the side. It's pretty significant, the amount that you can accomplish when you take control of your life like that. It's pretty awesome. Just think about where you would be if you hadn't taken that path. Like you said, with all the layoffs and everything like that. Sure, you may have had a, a stockpile, you may have had a big 401k from all the decade of work or so that, that you put in, but what now, right? What's the next path? Just keep going that to nine to five or keep find another way which is pretty scary for a lot of people. So it's important to, whatever you're doing, like it doesn't have to be real estate necessarily, but try to find some other side hustle or some other project that can give you options if and when that you decide to leave or if and when you are forced to leave the position that you're in. Casey, I want to talk about, you talked about your community in College Town in Wyoming that you invested in and then you bought other rental properties. Is your sole business focused in your local markets? Because again, I mentioned that earlier, but I'm really curious because again, we've never had someone in Wyoming. I'm just curious to know a little bit more about the market there. Yeah. So this will probably surprise a lot of people. There is 500,000 people in the entire state of Wyoming. So like that's a lot shocking. of people living right. in a town bigger than that or a city, a smaller city that's bigger than that. So we actually hit the entire state now, but initially I was just investing in this college town in Laramie, Wyoming. And one of the key things was supply and demand. Like there was just never enough supply for rentals. And there was a lot of, there was this, all this demand from college students. And there was another, there's like a technical college there too, an automotive one that drives a lot. And then just people who want to live there just because it is a nice outdoor place to live. So there's always been a ton of demand. And that was initially why I started to buy rental properties there and they cash flowed really well. And there are ways to get creative by renting by the bedroom or short-term rentals or, but it really just always came back to supply and demand. And then the other thing was, is the, the taxes, right? So I actually had a portfolio in Fort Worth and one in Wyoming. And then it was about two years ago, I was looking at them side by side and the stuff in, and there were very similar properties, similar rents, but the ones in Texas were borderline break even. They were only making a couple hundred bucks a month, which was good. There's nothing wrong with that. But these ones in Wyoming, as I mentioned, they were making a thousand dollars cash flow. And a lot of that was like I said, the demand, but the biggest thing was the property taxes. So Texas has high property taxes, but Wyoming is a unique state where it doesn't, 
It has very low property taxes, like a lot of states, but it also has low income tax, which is you usually don't get both, right? But it's due because it's such a mineral rich state. There's a lot of oil and gas, coal, trona, lots of other mining, a lot of natural resources, which drives that. But to answer your question is, yeah. started out just doing Laramie. And then we decided, hey, especially as I started to go direct the seller and do marketing, right. it was real hard to scale and do that in a town of 30,000 people. So what we did is we started to hit the entire state. But fortunately, I grew up there. I'd grown up in the northern part of the state. I just knew people across the state. And, as, and we strategically started hitting the major cities, which are Cheyenne, where the capital's at doing Casper. Casper is the heart of the state, right in the middle, good, decent sized city, probably second largest, and then Sheridan where I grew up. So those are the core four where we started to build out teams and build out crews and do a lot of marketing. But now today we actually market across the whole state because what I'm finding is, especially now with interest rates rising and people becoming more motivated, we're finding more deals in these like even smaller towns where we can do actually creative finance, which another thing I haven't talked about yet. It's a whole other episode, but we do a lot of creative deals where I'll find people that are they can't sell their house, right? Because they're in a smaller town, but they've got a good mortgage with favorable terms. And we're able to take on those type of deals and either turn around and rent them because that seller doesn't want to be a landlord, right? They no interest in that, but we'll turn around and rent it or we'll turn around and sell it to somebody else who can't get financing. So that's why we do the whole state and, sure. and kind of all together. Yeah, it makes sense from that perspective, especially talking about the, the laws in the jurisdictions, right? Each state has its different laws with property taxes and, and things like that. It makes sense to keep your strategy but I'm curious also, if I'm not mistaken, Larry is pretty much on the southern corner, southeast corner of Wyoming, which is pretty close to Colorado. It's pretty close to Nebraska. I'm sure you have other markets that you could explore that are actually much closer to some of the other cities in even Salt Lake City, which is a huge you know, burgeoning market of real estate, is probably much closer in proximity than it is even to Sheridan, which is way up in the north. Yeah. Yeah. And really it's space to... I've just found a, a better niche. So I guess, I don't know if I've shared this yet. I don't think I have. I actually live, I'm sitting here today in Houston. So I still live in Houston, but invest in Wyoming. And I could be investing here and I've been thinking about Houston for a while, but really I just look at, I like the competitive advantage I have in Wyoming because it is a smaller market. It doesn't have, it has a ton of demand for rentals and, and still on the retail market for people moving in and buying houses. But there's not a bunch of, there's not a bunch of hedge funds. There's not a bunch of private equity companies going in and buying up there is in Jackson Hole to an extent, but the rest of the state is pretty untapped. So I like it to where it's, I always say it's my competitive advantage because we can hit the whole state. I know I, the other thing, obviously growing up there, I understand how people, hey, I, this isn't a derogatory thing, but I always joke with people, if you go to Wyoming, it's like you're going back in 20 years in time. Like as far as how people operate, how fast things move, technology, like it's definitely a little bit behind the curve in terms of the rest of the country, but I like that. A lot of people love it. And that's why they live there. Understand how that works. And I'm excited because I can, I could take these other strategies or other concept or like networking with people in Houston or across the country and I can apply it there. Mm -hmm. And right. So I could go to Salt Lake, I could go to Denver, but I'm like, you know what, this is a market that's untapped and it's really, it's just our niche. And it's a big niche because it's a whole state, but it's really right. niche. No, but it's really, like you said, it's a competitive advantage is really what it is because number one, there's a lot less competition from what it sounds like. You're dealing with much smaller markets, which is not going to attract institutional money. It's not going to attract even a lot of seasoned investors. And because even though you are out of state living in Houston, because you have that familiarity of having lived there, I always talk about this on the show also, having a market that you're familiar with really gives you a competitive advantage, even if you're currently located out of state. 
because especially with a, a, such a small population, you're not going to have a lot of people from, who are also out-of-state investors looking to those markets, uh, especially when they're not, they're not showing the signs of, of job growth and population growth that so many other markets are, even though they're stable markets. There's a lot of opportunity. There's definitely demand for housing, which is always the case, I think, for most places. So you still have that competitive advantage. Yeah, how did, absolutely. How did you go from scaling from, like you said, one property, two properties, the refinance, and then starting to build? You talked about a little bit about building the contracting, building the firm, doing the flips and the things like that. Are you know building, continuing to build that? I know you talked about finding other types of investment properties, going into bigger, larger commercial properties as well. Are you doing both or is there your shift, uh, your focus is shifting? Yeah. Initially, the first part of your question is, I really started leveraging relationships with small banks, right? Because I was able to grow it organically. I didn't bring in a ton of partners. I've had partners and I still do to this day, but I've been able to bring up, I was able to build my portfolio just with by anything I could say from my W-2 and then just getting creative, doing creative financing, working with small banks. That's a big reason why I kept my W-2 job so long was because these small banks love the fact that I had a track record and experience and I had a good W-2 income. And then I took the time early on to build relationships with these banks and get to know them. And that's been one of the biggest game changers because in Wyoming, I do like it. Like I don't really need to do hard money because the small banks are very flexible. Like they can move quickly, especially again, if you have a relationships with these banks, you're still going to put a little money down, but just the you're getting bank financing and it's, you're not having to go pay those high rates of hard money. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a huge advantage also. Yes, it's, it may be e easier for, on one hand depending on what type of investing you're doing to, to focus more full-time on doing that. But at the same time, the advantage of having that W-2, and uh, especially when you're doing residential properties, bank financing is very difficult if you don't have a W-2. It's almost impossible. Now, you talked about earlier, and I'd love to, for you to get into this a little more about the seller financing that you're doing now, which really gives a great opportunity and, I guess, alternative to the bank financing. How did you come across that? And I'd love to hear just some experiences you've had or any you know, great stories you've had in doing the seller financing. Yeah, I love it, man. Seller financing, it's just grown, right? So it was one of the first books after Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it was Bigger Pockets and I read Brandon Turner's book about how to find or fund or how to buy money with, or how to buy real estate with no money down. Several things came for that. And I'd love to talk about the private money in a second too, but one of the big ones, so it was private money. The other big one was seller financing. So I started learning the concepts then and really started to, I was always pitching it to different sellers and trying to bring it up, but I didn't necessarily know the best way to do it. But I was always presenting it when I'd be talking to somebody who wanted to sell and, and it just evolved, right? So it was initially that, I read that book in 2016, but you really, I would say what really catapulted me or really the catalyst to get going was going direct to seller, right? So now that I go direct to seller, I have a lot of conversations, right? I have a, a lead manager who books, her goal is to book me about 20 appointments a week. So I'm getting in front of all these people who have at least some motivation of selling. And then I'm able to present to these guys, hey, uh, these sellers, and this is what separates us from a normal wholesaler. Say, hey, here's my cash offer. Like a lot of people might offer you. It's a lot lower and I'm just transparent with people like, hey, I can do this, but it's risky and I got to get the property at a big discount. Or we can sell it on terms. And that's when I get into creative finance and I explain that, hey, there's ways to assume your loan or take your loan subject to, or if they have it free and clear, why don't I make payments to you? And that's a way that we're still able to pay retail price in this current market where no, not a lot of people are getting full retail. They're having to either reduce price or make some concessions. But I'm like, hey, 
or especially if the house needs work, if they need if the house needs work there in today's market with eight, eight, nine percent interest rates, you're in a bind if your house isn't fixed up, clean, nice, ready to go. So I present these guys, hey, there's some creative ways that where I can purchase the house. And we even, so I might do that when I buy it and hold it on basically seller finance terms. I can get in the nuts and bolts, but overview is I'll either do it as a buy and hold and assume their or take over their mortgage subject to, we'll even make payments based on their equity, right? If I got somebody who houses worth 200,000, they owe 100,000, I'll take over their loan subject to at 100K. And then that 100K in equity will actually make payments or figure out some sort of note or payment on that. So that's one way to buy and hold. And then the second way is when we want to flip it, right? So I always tell people, hey, I can, we've got crews, I'm ready to flip this house. But if I got to, again, if I got to go pay cash for it, it's a much less price, much lesser price, right? But if we purchase it, I can pay more if you're basically willing to let me take on the loan subject to, and then I'll go flip it, do all the work. And then when we sell it, you'll get your loan paid off. And then sometimes we'll actually pay them on the back end based on if they had a lot of equity. So that's another way we've doing a lot of creative finance. Yeah. And you're going direct to seller and do you find, what, what's the demographic of, of property owners that you're going direct to seller to? Because that's, that obviously has a lot to do with this as well. Yeah. We, again, probably different than a lot of other people. People have like their niche list, their right. absence, the owners. We cast a wide net. Again, in a sad necessity in Wyoming because it's not that big. Yeah. But we hit really the whole market, right? I'd love to get into doing a little bit more niche. We do have some more niche lists, like a pre-foreclosure list or inherited properties. We do target them a little bit more, more like a sh or more rifle shot, right? Versus a shotgun. But we are more shotgun to get in front of everybody. And I just find that these people, a lot of people times, like we brought properties before where we actually wholesaled them. We bought them at a pretty deep discount and then sold them to somebody else. And they on paper weren't super motivated, but they didn't want to deal with the hassles of listing their house and making repairs. And they were just happy to make it simple. And they knew they were going to take less. People told me that all the time. They're like, hey, I understand I'm taking less, but at this point in my life, I want convenience. So those people probably aren't super motivated on paper and a normal wholesale list might not have found them. So we've just found cast a wide net and then we... And I think the other thing that really helps us, Yona, is like, we have just so many exit strategies. Again, I can buy it as a cash deal. We can buy it on seller finance terms. We also do novations, which is a whole, another subject to get into another day, but we'll do novations where we, again, we can just, it, it's similar to a seller finance where we help get the house sold. A lot of times we'll make repairs and then we'll basically help them get the house sold at, for as much as we can and keep more money in the seller's pocket. That's awesome. And I think it has a lot to do with just the the consistency of that. I, I talked to a lot of people who do similar strategies in terms of the the marketing, whether it's leaflets or you know, direct marketing. I'm curious about the strategies that you use that you employ as well. But um, what type of what type of strategies are you using actually to, to disseminate that? Obviously, yeah. mailers and all these kinds of things. But are you using like text messages and, and things like that? And have, do you track the data? Because that's something that I'm also very curious about. Is it something that is can you, are you doubling down in the areas or the, the types of you know, media that you're using to get the maximum response? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one where I was glad. So this was in like 2019, I believe, is when that's when I first wanted to go direct and seller. So rather, and I was trying to figure it out myself. And fortunately, I joined a, a group out of Midland, Texas, actually, some guys I'd met a while back. They're, they're the REI game changers. So they helped me build out my system of doing all these different marketing channels. So I'm going to answer the KPIs first, but one of the biggest things I ask them is, hey, what type of CRM do you use? How do you keep track of all these leads? And I think that's, if somebody's thinking about doing this, that's the first 
one of the important things to have from the start, because you, if not, it's going to be a big mess of all these leads. You can't keep track of them and you can't track the KPIs, but we use a software called RE Simply and ReSimply it, and it works really well. It's a pretty affordable one to where it's out of the box. It's not like you don't have to go build it all out. It's built for you. And yeah, all our leads come into there and then we can track our, we have, we're able to track each different type of marketing, which I guess I'll explain now. One of our main best ones has always been direct mail um, in Wyoming. Cause again, what I like is I talk to other people in other markets that like, yeah, I'm talking to this seller and he's got this stack of postcards on his kitchen table and I'm competing against all these other people. When we send a postcard, we get a good response and people re reply, people really respond well. And we're the only ones sending a postcard. So, oh, wow. I didn't know I had this option. So those work well and we track the data on that. And then other good ones has been texting. Texting still works for us because again, there's not a ton of people doing it. We've done radio. Radio hasn't been quite as good, but the other things are we do Facebook leads, we do Google. And another one we do is we just pay a service where it's called paper lead. And for example, we just need to sell my house fast and we just buy the leads. They'll find, they'll go find the lead somewhere online. And they'll send it to us and we work the lead. Yeah. And that works good in our market because it's still a pretty affordable price on right. that. But we track each one of those channels and in terms of how many leads we get. And this goes from leads to appointments, to contracts, to closing, to revenue. We track all that. That's awesome. And it's amazing to hear how you can really scale that. It's an incredible business. I think there's, sounds like there's a lot of opportunity. Are you facing any other like type of competition, people similar to you in your markets that are doing the same thing? Or similar? Yeah, there are, no one else covers a whole state like we do, mm -hmm. but for example, in Cheyenne, Cheyenne's the capital and right. it's about only about an hour and a half north of Denver. And, and it's 40 minutes, 30 minutes from Fort Collins, the front range of Denver, which is blown up, right? So a lot, it, Cheyenne's felt a lot of growth from Colorado and doing really well. So we have found that there are some other wholesalers and other people marketing there, but you, I don't know, you start to collaborate with these people. I also find too, that on some of these markets where there are other wholesalers, they don't necessarily do creative finance or do some of the other strategies we have. So it's not always a bad thing if there are some other people doing marketing, cause we'll share deals or maybe I could take a deal down that they can't and vice versa. Yeah. Makes sense. Collaboration is key. I think that's, uh, that's so important. It's so important. Now, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm really curious to go down this path with you a little bit in terms of the transition you mentioned going into syndication, going into more commercial deals. If the business of the wholesaling and the fix of living, all that is, sounds like pretty successful, what's the drive to change that up or to add that? Because again, it doesn't sound like you're slowing down whatsoever that business, but expanding into this new business. Like what's the drive to do that business as opposed to just doubling down in the first one? Yeah. I think it's, it's a couple of different reasons. One of the first ones is, so I always say the blessing and the curse is uh, this is a very niche market with not a lot of competition in terms of like investors, right? So the blessing we've talked a lot about is, hey, I'm the only one marketing, I'm getting better deals, right? The curse is when I go to sell properties, I, a lot of times I can't just go double close or go sell, go wholesale it to people. We do, but in terms of like people that are true wholesalers, They've got a buyer's list and sometimes their buyers, like they, like if they got a deal, it's easy to sell, right? For me, it's the opposite. It's easier for me to sell it on the retail market, but it's hard for me to go sell that to another investor because there just aren't as many. So what I found is to kind of, to really mitigate that and continue to scale is why don't we either buy more properties ourselves or, or a syndication, or even we find a lot of deals that all partner with a private money lender where you know what, we need to close on this property and make some quick repairs and then relist it. But that's a very capital intensive deal, right? Where you're either, even if you're using the small bank, you're still putting 25% down on a 
$250,000 house. So you're putting say 50K, 50 to 75 to 100K that you need to put in as equity. So a lot of times we'll actually bring in private money lenders. that will be the equity in second position and then we'll have, but they will be debt. I'll set them up as debt and then I'll have the bank in first position. So that helps us take on more deals. And then, so I guess that's the kind of to summarize, mm. we set them up that way. And then we also are using the syndication or ours is a fund, right? So we're right. setting up a fund that can take down, because again, I mentioned our bread and butter is finding the deal, fixing it up and renting it, holding it, it with our in-house team. Because we've got all that, all that management in-house and we can control it. But again, that's a very capital intensive, putting 25% each property. There's some that we like to burr out and there's some that we sell and flip, but I'll, I'll just tell you this, the easiest thing that we do is that I'll buy it, fix it and rent it out. Cause you don't have to, you don't have to worry about, Hey, what's the market going to be like when we get done flipping this? Because the rental market is, is a lot more consistent than the home selling market. That makes a lot of sense. Something that I actually found from other wholesalers as well is they just don't know what to do with properties that don't fit their criteria. And yes, if you have one business doing that, so it makes sense if you're getting these deals, Hey, wait a second. We can try to figure out a way to take down these deals as well. It just, it makes sense from just from overall business perspective. Obviously it's creating more channels, but at the same time, it's creating more opportunities. That's how I see it. Yeah. And you just, you always talk to these wholesalers or people that have been doing it for a long time and they talk about, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have flipped and sold all those properties. Yeah. Hold them. I just have that conversation all the time. So we're looking at, hey, let's start to bundle these up and package them up. And here's the other way to really cash in later is say we can bundle up. 10, 15, 20 properties that are cash flowing in this fund or in this portfolio, that becomes very appetizing to go sell to somebody because it's making a good return. It's cash flowing. That's a great way to bundle up and really create long-term, whether you just hold it for long-term wealth or you bundle it up and sell it to a bigger group of institutional money or just another fund. So mm -hmm. we just thought about that's the bigger gang. And really, I found that like wholesaling is not easy, but there are a lot of, I think there's I feel like there's more people that are wholesaling than people that know how to operate a portfolio and manage cash flow. So I think there's more of a demand for this. So that's why we shifted it. And it's really our natural, that's what my natural, I think, strength is like building a portfolio, managing it and making it worth long-term. And that's the thing, fixing and flipping is, can be risky. It's always been risky. A lot of people have lost, we've lost money on deals, right? But it's very hard to lose is if you're well-capitalized on a portfolio of properties. Makes sense. Makes absolute sense. And I think another thing that kind of just bringing out from what you're saying here is you open to new opportunities, right? When they come along. And I think that really shapes the idea of an entrepreneur of, is that, yeah, if a new idea comes around and I have a lot of friends that have just baffles my mind sometimes, like every time I talk to them, they have a new idea, a new project that they're working on. And when new opportunities come, you just, your mind just automatically starts to think, wait a second, how can I capitalize on this and, uh, yeah. and do something more like that? I might share one more on that. Yeah, you know, please it, do. Is to, to your point, so it was back this year, it was like in March, we got this lead through our marketing. We weren't going for large multifamily, but it came in through the marketing. It was a 63 unit and we got to talking to these guys and they were willing to sell it to us at 60,000 a door for these two bed, one bath room apartments. And I knew the market there. I'm like, these properties will rent for a thousand bucks a month. They might go for 1200. And I had just done this on a 14 unit and we bought it. They were renting for 600 bucks a month. We were able to get in there, increase rent. We doubled them. We're at 1200 a month a year later. So I guess I'd had a little small proof of concept with a 14 unit, but then I saw this deal and I'm like, man, this is, 
this seems too good to be true. And the fact that now I can do it all in one, I'm realizing this now that we bought it and we're taking it down. Now I can do these 63. I guess I looked at it this way. I'm like, if I was buying a single family house for $60,000 and I was going to rent for a thousand to 1200 bucks a month, which is nearly a 2% deal. Like I would do that all day, sign me up. And now I get to multiply by 63. But that was a new skill set, right? I right. never raised much money. I never taken out that big of a loan, never done something of that size. But to your point, I'm like, the numbers are there. Let's figure this out. And that's what we did. It took about two or three months to put the deal together, but we closed in uh, June 30th. And yeah, we're right in the middle of fixing this property up, which is really exciting. And as just on, on that point, you mentioned obviously a new skill set and trying to find new ways to capitalize that. But is it more difficult, would you say, this deal that you're working on? which is obviously much bigger than taking on a single family or a duplex or something like that, which is seemingly a lot smaller, but at the same time, seems like pretty much the same work is required regardless. Yeah, it's an easy answer, right? If I to do that, and if I could find 63 houses that had the numbers on, that would be a crap ton of work and it would be a mess, right? It, it could be done, but it would take big payrolls, big staffing, Right. Could be done, right? But now, because I could do 63 at once, you're right. It's like all the trans, you're just repeating. As far as a transaction, is obviously yeah. it was just one transaction and you put it all together, just like I would put together a single family one. It was more, there was more to it, but yeah, it's so many ways to scale. And now the fact that even like evictions, like we, we do in-house evictions because we've just learned the process. And now we found that it's, we just, I'd, if you haven't found that out for me, I just like to, I like to build out processes and see if we can do it in-house. Sure. So I'm like, let's do this. But now we've gotten good at it to where we're just, we've had to evict a lot of people because that's why this was such a good deal is they had a lot of bad tenants that weren't paying, but we just got them all. But we just started to repeat that. And I'm repeating it. Like we probably had to do it 20 times. And now we're, so that's one example. And then now going and fixing it up, like we're mm -hmm. starting to as how we fix things up and how we do our maintenance. And yeah, it's just, you're repeating different things. And it, it really makes you rethink single family. You're like, man, should have been doing this from the start, but, awesome. but I still love it. Awesome. Casey, I want to transition now to what we call the final four. These are four questions I ask all my guests. So first question to you is, what's the worst job that you ever had? Yeah, worst job. So I've been lucky in my W-2 life and with Shell, I had a lot of great roles and got abroad. And so I can't really say any of those that I didn't love, but, but I do remember my first, it was one of my first high school jobs and it was painting a house. And I was like, so I was 16 and I was just happy to get a job. But literally all we did for an entire summer, I was a painter, but I did no painting. I did absolutely zero painting. I did sand. We were painting the outside of this house. And all I did is sand with either sanding by hand with sandpaper or belt sanders. And it was a long, miserable, hot summer. But yeah, yeah. it doesn't sound too pleasant whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that was the worst, but it was good though. Like it wasn't fun, but I. It, stuff like that teaches me. I remember, remember if I just had to get in the truck to go pick something up, I'd be like, oh, right. This is awesome. I don't have to be standing like, and then definitely puts things in perspective as to working to where you don't have to do that every day. Absolutely. hundred percent. Second question. What's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift? Now you mentioned already, obviously, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was a huge one for you, but is there any of the books that kind of changed the way that you've, you've thought about something? Yeah, there's really been so many depending on what time and i sometimes feel like i read them at the right time in my life and i'll just go off the most recent one which is the 10 10x is better than 2x or whatever yeah I forget the exact title but i'm going through it now and this is i think just yeah that's really that you can't have a better book that's more of a paradigm shift that shifts the way you think 
And it's a really, it's a big challenge for me because I tend to just do too many different things and I'm trying to just figure out what I can really do, what I can really do well and really scale. And this is a big, this is my best, really my next chapter is really diving into this and going all in and leaning in and trying to get good at just being really good at one thing and delegating other different things so I can really scale up and do one thing really well. So it's definitely one of my flaws. So I'm trying to take that book and apply it to hopefully make it a strength. That's the goal. We try to educate yourself and these new ideas, apply them. And it's a process like anything else. But yeah, absolutely. Something like that is is incredible. So I'm going to put that in the show notes for anyone who wants to check that out. Definitely a highly recommended book there. Third question is, what's a skill or talent that you would like to learn? Yeah, you know what, skill or talent. I was just thinking about language skills, right? So I, I got a minor in college and I was able to speak Spanish, but I don't get to practice it as much. So I think it would be either refining that and getting really good at my Spanish to where I can speak it, or I think honestly, just picking up another language. I haven't identified the next one, but I do traveling and I think it's really cool when you can be able to speak. And I really want to teach our kids to be able to by bilingual. So I think that'd be it for getting either getting really proficient at Spanish or learning another language. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a good skill to have learning a new language. And Spanish is probably one of the best ones you can learn right now, especially in America. Fourth and final question, what does success mean to you? Yeah, it's a good definition or a good, very good question. And it, it's changed for sure over time. Yeah, I think it's just for me, it's mine's a balance, right? Because I'm trying to balance like success in work, success in family and in whatever different parts of your life. But to me, I'm trying to define success as how do I balance all those, right? And make sure that I'm successful in each one and thriving in each one. Because you can be really good in one, like doing really good in work, or maybe you're doing really good in family or relationships. But to me, I'm trying to define success. And I guess little bit the way I would answer the question is hey how do you how are you able to balance all of them to where each one of those is able to be yeah successful and meaningful and you don't give too much on one to where one drops and it's always a balance it's always going to be a balance but you never go on to want it I never want to let it swing too far one way or the other yeah absolutely and the goalpost keeps moving right yeah and as you become more successful according to what you defined it before you try to figure out new ways to be successful and, and what does it really mean? And I think focusing on inwards and, and what that means to you and your family, et cetera, is probably the most impactful definition of that. Casey, it's been a true pleasure catching up with you today. Where can our listeners find you or reach out to you? You bet. Yeah, I'm on social media, depending on what people like to use. Instagram, at Casey Braggerson, same thing on Facebook and LinkedIn. We're very active there. Also on YouTube. We have our own channel too, where we put out a lot of the content, share a lot of the mm -hmm. strategies from creative finance to how we fund deals, to how we fix and flip, how we utilize our virtual assistants to run our different parts of our company. So we're an open book. I like sharing a lot. So if people want to go follow me there, that'd be big there too. And, and feel free to just shoot me a message on any one of the, any one of our social media channels or an email. All right. We'll make sure to put all that in the show notes, especially obviously the YouTube channel, as you mentioned before the show. We filmed a, a video together at Bigger Pockets Conference not too long ago, and that's going to be going up on the channel all about Costake. So excited to check that out once it goes live. And thank you again for joining me. It's really been a pleasure. You bet, Yana. Appreciate being on, man. Great time. Yeah, awesome. And to our listeners, thank you guys for joining and listening all the way to the end once again. Remember, the best advice comes only when you ask. 
Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I wanna ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I wanna hear from you guys. So I wanna hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.